Welcome. Welcome to another episode of Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. I'm thrilled to be here with you today. I'm thrilled uh, that you'll be hearing me talk with Ben Dreyer, or Benjamin Dreyer. Um, ben Dreyer has been in publishing for a very long time. Like me, he grew up on Long Island, uh, and he was interested in acting, and he took a sharp turn, and he became, ultimately, uh, the copy chief at Random House. Maybe you've heard of them. They're huge. It's actually now Penguin Random House. Um, but after all the years of being an editor and doing work on other people's books, he came out with something called Dryer's English, which is a New York Times bestseller. Um, he somehow manages to make grammar and the rules of language fun and interesting. And he has a unique voice and I think he is very funny and wonderful and I'm obviously not alone. A lot of people bought this book. A lot of people uh, follow him on Twitter and uh, in other areas. And he's so, so popular and the way he deals with these things is so popular. He now has a game out. That is correct. There is a game called Stet, S-T-E-T. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about publishing, uh, his life, what publishing is doing now. And uh, Ben's also an out gay guy who's married and lives in New York. We're going to talk about what it's like to have gone through a time when, uh, as a very young man, he saw Stonewall uh, more on TV than in real life, I guess, and uh, also living through AIDS and the whole gay liberation movement. So we cover a lot in this interview, and I think you're going to really love it. Um, I also know that you're really going to love Abe's muffins. Have you tried them yet? Am I getting annoying with this? I gotta tell you, I, they're our sponsor. Uh, it's getting close to a religion for me. Uh, I don't want to offend anybody with that comment, but the reality is you haven't tasted them and that's why you're not calling and writing me and saying, oh my God, Eric, thank you so much. These are vegan, uh, allergen-free muffins. They come in all kinds of flavors. You know they have cornbread. Oh my God, I decimated the cornbread they sent me. My wife and I had that in the house for a very short time. It's embarrassing how short a time it took for us to go through the cornbread. Also their packaging, uh, especially with the cornbread, is very environmental. They reduced their impact on the planet. Um, look, it tastes great, it's good for you. Your kids are gonna love these muffins and cakes. Uh, I think it's time. Can you just go find them, please? Eat them. Let me know you love them. That would be great. In the meantime, uh, I want you to really enjoy this interview because Ben Dreyer is wonderful, brilliant, and very entertaining. So without any further ado, here's my chat with Ben Dreyer. I'm just going to, uh, as you may or may not know, this podcast is about anything and everything. Uh, it just, for me, the through line is how people bump up against the law in different ways. Okay. 
I know it's fairly, fairly generic. I'm just like, we already started as far as I'm concerned. I love your apartment and no surprise to anyone who knows you, there's books, there's a books. lot of books. And for people who don't know Ben Dreyer, which is, I've learned that's how I say it. Um, I don't know that we've actually met in person, although I feel like we've known each other forever. Um, it's that weird thing that happens and has happened over the last few years. And it's not just, you know, it's not just Twitter. It's not just your online presence. It's like, it's your office presence too. I confuse e-communication with actual communication. Phone calls, emails, in person. It's like, I don't really remember which is which anymore. <laughs> right. And I think that, well, first of all, you've been in publishing far longer than I was. But we did and do have mutual acquaintances probably through publishing. I'm, I'm looking back at myself, you know, when I was just getting into this business, which is 30 years ago, um, with a reasonable public school education followed by a reasonable university education. Where'd you grow up? Oh, I grew up on Long Island. Wait, which town? Um, a, a town called Albertson, which is known pretty much only because of the fact there's a train station in it. Massapequa Park. Oh, there you go. There you go. I know so, Albertson. So there I, there I was in Albertson, and I went to the Wheatley School, which everybody always asks, oh, is that private school? I'm like, no, it's just a school with a name attached to it. Anyway, and then I went to Northwestern. Um, which, by the way, I didn't even know this about you, but you were interested in acting and may have acted well well, I'll ask a question about that, but I feel like Northwestern is is known for having a great acting program. Is that accurate? Yeah. Well, yes, and that's one of the. I mean, there there are two reasons I went to Northwestern. I chose to go to Northwestern. One, because of their theater program, and two, because I really wanted to get off the East Coast. No, I mean, I, I did not. I didn't mean I wanted to get off the East Coast. I wanted to get away from home. Yeah, I think that's something that you and I shared, although I went to upstate New York, but being in the mountains in the frigid weather, four hours drive felt like it was far enough for me. But you yeah. went much farther west to the city with the big shoulders. Yeah, And the thing is, I went to Northwestern with the intention, indeed, of having a career in the theater, and I wanted to be an actor, and I was very sort of stage struck. The problem was that being the perceptive young person I believe that I was, I recognized that a lot of the people that I was in school with were vastly more talented than I was. And I didn't have it in me at that point to sign on to be a mediocrity. Now, if I had had a different mind then, if I had a different mindset then, I might have just sort of reapplied myself and figured out another way to do it. But I didn't have that kind of confidence, so I just abandoned. Um, did you experience those kind of like sitting there looking at people in acting class or performances and say, oh, Jesus, that's really there's something? Yeah, yeah. And, and, and some of my very, you know, some of my very good friends were just supremely talented. And I knew that these were people who were going to be able to make their way through the theater. And I thought I was not going to be able uh, to, to do that. I mean, um, you know, in those days, it was just my follow through was not really good. And I sort of wandered for the next decade or so after I got out of 
college, I mean, I, I did the things you do to support yourself to make money. I, well, the things that I did to make, I mean, there are other things you can do. Um, I, I, I had a career, you know, bartending and I had a career waiting on tables and it was great because it was fun and it was all cash and that was really sort of lovely. But the, the happy accident by which I ended up in the publishing industry has to do with my moving back to New York in the late 80s, um, figuring that I would continue to work in restaurants, applying for jobs in two restaurants very much near where I lived. They both said yes. Uh, I chose the restaurant that in fact began to fail almost immediately, <laughs> at which point I finally realized I was tired of working in restaurants and sought other things to do. Had I gone to the other restaurant, which was Union Square Cafe, for oh my God. <laughs> I might still be working in the restaurant business. Is that the place that has a Brazilian or um, a Latin kind of cuisine? Or am I thinking of a different Union no, Square Union, restaurant? Union Square was, you know, one of the sort of the preeminent new American. Oh, I, I know. I don't, it, was, it was just west of Union Square. Now I believe it's just east of Union Square. It had a celebrity chef who uh, I, well, Danny Meyer was the, the famous owner. In yeah, any of right. If I, so, had, if I had gone to work there, I might I, I, I might have found my way into you know a, a real career uh, in <laughs> restaurant business. But as it as it turned out, I um, I ended up wandering into freelance proofreading and freelance copy editing, and then I started at Random House, and that was that was 1993. And it's the only Random House is the only publishing company I have ever worked. You, what's interesting to me is you've worked, I mean, the people I've seen you listed working with are A-list people, but I'll bet that you've worked with some people that are not uh, highly recognizable names that you had wonderful experiences with, uh, both yeah. in the material and the people, right? It's not, it's, the thing about publishing is I like to think of it as showbiz, but it, the star quality of it is different than say a movie or theater or film, right? Or, or rather, state whatever. Yeah. I mean, if I'm, you know, if I'm, if I'm in the position of listing a half dozen writers that I've worked with for public consumption, of course, I'm going to mention a lot of the big names. Um, oh, name but, them in case my listeners don't know. Oh, like Michael Shaben and Edmund Morris and Elizabeth Strout, and I copy edited one novel by E.L. Doctorow, which was which was a great honor. And I, I had the very weird pleasure of copy editing uh, one of my favorite authors who happened to have been dead for 50 years by the time I got to do uh, the work on her, on, on her manuscripts. And that, and that was Shirley Jackson. Uh, not, not a lot of feedback from Ms. No, Jackson. not a lot of feedback, not a lot of feedback. Um, but that was, a whole, that was a whole saga of figuring out the proper technique for copy editing an author who can't answer back. Right. And I'll bet you, you know, it's like anything else. You can't do anything in the world without getting praised and criticized and mostly the latter. Did you face uh, any difficulties from fans who didn't like whatever you did because the author was not available? Um, no, to be, no, to be perfectly honest. And of course, my my goal when I set out to copy edit her was to do as little as I could get away with um, and yet support her writing so that it was going to be presented properly and well to the public. I mean, 
she, you know, every writer deserves uh, a good copy at it. The, I mean, what... the lucky thing for me was that the texts that we were working from, which were essentially her, uh, in, in most cases, her first drafts were in gorgeous shape and they didn't really need very much. So I, a little tweaking of punctuation, occasional like fix a word, reorder something. But um, I, I mean, I was lucky, you know, I was lucky that I was working with an author who had done all the work, had done most of the work that needed to have been done long before. You know, for some reason, and it may not be analogous, I think of Harper Lee, of course, and the fact that, you know, she's the legend of the one, perhaps one of the greatest books in the American history of literature, to be sure. And then that was it, you know, uh, sort of like the old Steve Martin joke, $10,000 a ticket, one show, you're done. Wasn't quite like that. But then at the very end of her life, the second book shows up and there was a little bit of a kerfuffle about that book and the treatment of the book and Ms. Lee. And I, I don't think that was your publisher, was it, you guys? It was one of our, one of my cousin publishers. <laughs> An imprint? Yeah, but not, that wasn't mine. Did you? And so therefore the grief never came across your desk? It, 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 it did not. And um, yeah, I mean, I know there was a lot of speculation at the time as far as uh, intention and her intention and whether that, you know, manuscript should ever have seen light of day, but I'm not privy to the, to the details. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm ambivalent about those kind of things, as I'm sure lots of people are. I know there are stories of famous authors who burn some of their work. And people, you know, in the same way that just at the beginning of this podcast, you were very critical of your acting ability. And we don't know, in fact, if that was an accurate assessment, because we're often our worst critics. There are people we know who we feel need to see their work realistically and see how they're not great. But that usually those people are not the same as those who are so self-critical. Um, and I don't know if it was Kafka who was one of these people, but there were plenty of people who destroyed a lot of manuscripts that, um, you know, a lot of us are sad that we never got to read. Uh, are, do you, do you think about that at all? Do you have any authors that you wish there was more of just cause we're talking about Harper Lee? Yeah, I mean, I mean, one, one, of the, uh, one of the texts I ran across decades ago, um, it, was a, uh, it was a posthumous collection of Shirley Jackson's material edited by her husband. And one of the things in it is an unfinished novel called Come Along With Me, which basically toddles along in you know, beautiful shape. I mean, I don't know what editorial process they put it through back then when they were publishing it just really a few years after her death. But it's like it toddles on for um, about five chapters and then it stops. <laughs> and, um, and, and I don't know whether there was an outline that went with it that covered the rest of it or it was, you know, I don't know what her technique was, but all you get is those five chapters and then that's the end of it. Right. And, you know, and she, she died very uh, relatively young. I mean, she was in her 50s. 
um, and you and you. I consider about, that young now. Yes, I do too now. <laughs> you know, and you think about you think about the the, the work that might have, uh, you know, that that might have come, or a, a conversation I, I was having a couple of weeks ago, speculating. I mean, Chekhov died in what his early forties. Anton Chekhov, the playwright. Yeah. Okay, just I want to be clear. And you know, and then, you know, left behind a number of really first grade plays. And the last one is The Cherry Orchard, which for my money is one of the greatest plays ever written. Right. And think of all that might have happened. Mm. But uh, there's, a, there's a moment in Tom Stoppard's play, Arcadia, where the conversation turns to the fire that took out the library in Alexandria. Yes. Mourning all of the manuscripts that were lost. Mm. And the point is made you can mourn all the manuscripts that were lost, or you can cherish the ones that remain. Well, how awesome to have Tom Stoppard show up because I'm a huge fan of his also. Um, but I wanna sidestep a little bit to your book that, well, it's not that recent, but it's somewhat recent and it's, it was and is a New York Times bestselling. A book. Is that your first bestseller that you have? It's my, it's my first book and thus my first bestseller. You are batting a thousand. Um, yes. And for people who don't know, can you talk about Ben Dreyer's English? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I got it into my head. So the book was published last January, so January 2019. Uh, I had got it into my head I would say six or more years before that, that it suddenly occurred to me I wanted to write a book. And, and I think that it was uh, in part because there was a sort of a latent creativity in me that was sort of crawling its way back to the surface. Uh, there was also the fact that I had been working in publishing for a very long time and, and I was beginning to get a little sort of burned out. Um, and I could, you know, I was gonna continue to do my job, but it was like, there has to be some other place for me to put my focus, for me to put my energy. Um, in any event, it occurred to me that I might want to uh, that I might want to write a book. And and though I do not believe in the wisdom of write what you know, um, it, it it was appropriate in my case to write what I know. And 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 essentially, I I, I barged into the office of our editor in chief and I said, uh, Susan, I think that I would like to write a book about copy editing and her response was positive and she encouraged me and um, and introduced me to my agent. Uh, and the next thing I knew, I had a deal uh, with my own house. Um, sure. Can I ask who your agent is? Because I actually- Yeah, Jennifer know. Joel is my okay. agent. She's wonderful, she works at ICM. I, I adore her. For anybody who doesn't know, which I find it hard to believe, ICM is a giant multinational talent agency who handles literature, but so much more. Yeah, right? and we hit, it off, we hit it off on our first introduction, um, you know, in, in part because she thought it was a good idea for a book, but also in part the personal enthusiasm she brought because she loves this stuff, this, this copy editing stuff that I do. But let's be honest, uh, part of what makes this book great is you, you're funny the way you look at the world and the way you interact and the personality you bring to it is it's in it's in there it's 
it can't be taken out. It's the, uh, I don't, what do you call those sandwiches that uh, <laughs> press them in the cheese and the meat gets all together? Oh my God, I'm losing my vocabulary. A, a panino. Yes, exactly. And so I think that the book is a wonderful panino of, yes, uh, rules and, and interesting pieces of information, but it also has you in it in a way that I think, frankly, makes it, makes it a good book. I mean, have, have you have you heard that? I can't be the first person to say that. No, well, I mean, I, I the the thing that was really most uh, that was most delightful to to me, and it took it took me a very long time to find the right voice in which to write the book. And when I started writing, and there's a reason it took me five years. When we all thought, oh, well, you can knock that, you can knock this out in about twelve to eighteen months. It's like, well, it wasn't. It didn't work out that way. Um, I wrote tens of thousands of words that I was boring myself silly. They were just sort of stodgy and, and, and it was like I had nothing to say. And strangely enough, I found my writing voice in, of all places, Twitter. <laughs> yeah, because, I could see that. Because there I was, you know, on Twitter, trying to be, you know, the friendly neighborhood coffee chief, but also realizing you're going to be on, you're going to be on Twitter. You need to be entertaining. You need to be funny. You need to be fast. You need to get in and get out. And eventually, I realized that the voice that I was cultivating there, if I could figure out how to translate it into a slightly more extended prose style, that was my voice. Um, and and jump ahead to when the manuscript was completed and we'd gone through copy editing, because of course I had to be copy edited myself. And my mother is reading The Bound Galley. And, um, and I remember her telling me, she said, it sounds just like you. Oh, that's fantastic. It was wonderful. And, <laughs> and, and the flip side of that is after the fact, since the book was published, people would read the book and then I would go to an event or I would just, you know, meet somebody somewhere and they would say to me, you sound just like it. <laughs> Perfect. I mean, oh, yeah. who cares a chicken or an egg? Uh, I remember, this is going to be strange because people may not think this is a great book, but Kathy Griffin, whether you like her or don't, I find her very funny, um, and I read her autobiography a few years ago when it came out. I don't remember the name of it, um, but I remember as I was reading it thinking, either this was not ghosted, or whoever ghosted it, or co-wrote it with her, really got her voice, because I felt like Kathy Griffin was telling me each story. And by the way, it wasn't just a whole bunch of laughs. She had a very serious autobiography, which I think is fantastic. And I don't know if you've had a chance to read it and whether you're a fan or not, um, which is an excellent segue. I, I'm not outing you right then. You're, you're an out gay guy. Would you oh, describe yeah, yeah, yourself yeah. that way? Yes. Okay. I was like, you're out me as a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> no, 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 nothing that horrific. Um, and, um, <laughs> And living, and I think we're contemporaries based on what I've read. So I'm 58, I'm not asking your age, 
but we've both lived through a whole lot of things. I'm a I was bit in, older than you are. Okay. But, you know, I joke with younger people that when I was in high school, we didn't have a gay, straight alliance or even a gay alliance. We just had, uh, you were in the theater and then you got shoved into the lockers. <laughs> and that, that was that experience. And then, you know, living through AIDS, just as a lot of people were discovering their sexuality and, and their commonality and whatever. And it's been a very weird evolution uh, for people our age to then see some of the things that have happened just when it's been important, let's say, for gay people to come out and say, look, this is what I am, I'm gay. And then some people come along and go, well, I don't want to be defined that way. I don't even know that I want there to be a binary or, you know, it's been a tremendous evolution. There's a lot of conversation about it. And I'm curious if you feel like you'd want to talk about that at all. And if you do, what do you think is important for people to hear about it? Well, I mean, the thing is that the, the, the generations of, the generations of, of, of gay people, the, 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 the shifts in perception from within, the perception from without, um, it, it's, it's so tumultuous and it's so fast paced. I mean, you know, I mean, I, I came of age, I mean, when, when, when Stonewall happened, I was only, you know, 11 years old. So I was not part of that uh, generation, the, the, the people who finally decided after, you know, decades of oppression uh, from without and from within to start fighting back and the gay liberation movement is, is born. My, um, you know, my, my process felt to me, much more personal. Um, you didn't. You didn't have role models. You didn't have things to look at. There were, you know, there weren't gay people as characters on television shows. You know, once a year there was, you know, the the AIDS movie of the year. Um, <laughs> right. Or you had Paul Lynn or right. um, Paul Charles Lynn. Nelson Riley. And that was and, kind and of a lot of secret knowledge and secret information. Um, and, and you had to figure it out and you had to figure it out to a great extent on your own. And, and, and one of the things, and I, I, it's, it's not that I envy those who are younger than, uh, much younger than I am. I, 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 I applaud them and I cherish them for it, that they were socialized in a world where their parents' friends were gay, or maybe even their parents were right. gay. Um, I mean, right. you know, I mean I, when my nephew graduated from high school, I remember going to his graduation, and I remember that you know that one of his friends was there with his boyfriend, and the boyfriend was sitting with the with the student's parents, and I it, it just it, it moved me so much. Um, yeah, you know, I, I see that. And I know it's a trite saying, and it was a big movement online for a while, the it gets better with lots of people having videos. But, you know, like many cliches, it's true. I feel like you and I, I'm just going to make us a partnership on this podcast. We're and, and by the way, we're seeing some crazy stuff right now we're living through. No doubt about it. But 
I do feel like as a result of this tumult, something is being born and things are going to get better and continue to get better. Not to, I mean, certainly on this front of people becoming who they want to be, you know, like, could you imagine a show like RuPaul's Drag Race when we were younger? Or, I mean, you know, I just, just as one example, I'm not certainly one giant end of the spectrum to be sure, but you know, how about Angels in America? How about just having a show like Modern Family where there's just a gay couple as part of the family? And I, you know, every time we see this, there's a lot of pressure on anybody, similarly to when you had a person of color in a show. It's like, you have to represent every gay person for these next five years. Or, you know, Julia on Diane, uh, Diane Carroll. Thank you so much. Uh, and I remember that from my youth and for kids who don't know, Diane Carroll is a, and recently passed, I think, amazing yeah. uh, black actress. And she was the lead as a nurse in a Vietnam era TV show, not really a sitcom, maybe a dramedy if they had such things then. But she was like the first black woman that a lot of white people ever saw. Like it, it was incredible. And I think, well, I know for a fact, for instance, that the woman who played um, Uhura on Star Trek was going to quit Star Trek and Martin Luther King spoke with her. I don't know if you know that story, you might probably. Yes, and, I, I, and, yeah. I just encountered it recently. Oh, yeah, and he said, you can't, we need you. Basically, yeah. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I think that that is just all of this. We, there's a, such a context that those of us who've lived a while uh, have lived through. And I, I, I honestly like having these conversations because as you know, from if you hang on on Twitter too long, you will lose your hope. <laughs> <laughs> if you go down the wrong dead end streets of Twitter. And so I like talking about this and I'm really happy that you're talking with me about it because uh, it rekindles my hope. I, I thank you for that. I mean, my, you know, my being gay is an extraordinarily important part of my life, of my personality. Um, um, you know, my cultural ancestors mean the world to me, you know, Oscar Wilde, Tennessee Williams, all the rest of them. And you, you think or you fear actually that what's going to happen is that the, the, the subsequent generations of, of gay people who, who, who didn't come of age when I did, they're not going to care. It's like they, they want to be like everybody else, except they don't. So that's great. And they do want to know where they came from. Um, right. And, and you know, you, you, you start out being a gay young thing and then you find yourself decades later being, you know, a wise old gay. And it's like, well, <laughs> it, it, it beats the alternative as they, as they say. Now, this leads me to the whole notion of this podcast, which is, people brush up against the law all the time. And for you, it could have something to do with, you know, what we're just talking about, being a member of the LGBTQ, you know, or, or it could be, oh my God, we run into the law all the time at the office in ways that I feel hamstrung or liberated or defended. Um, I just think that the law for better or worse is so pervasive. It's like a circulatory system that we, 
just find ourselves with and we can't live without it, but sometimes we'd like to. Uh, and other people are just grateful for it. So I, what, what is your, do you have any kind of anecdotes about your experiences brushing up against the law? No, I mean, I think the thing really is, and I, 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 I recognize this, um, you know, it's like there are easier things on this earth than, than growing up, you know, being a gay person coming of age in the, in the pre-AIDS era and trying to get through that and trying basically just to sort of survive that. Um, there are a lot of things that are easier than, than, than that. Um, but I, I recognize that I have had a rather privileged um, existence simply by the fact of, uh, of being born into a reasonably middle-class family, of having, uh, you know, being born into a stable family, having a father who was an attorney, uh, who, who supported us, who was intent on sending my sister and me off to good colleges. Um, I, I made my way through my 20s doing a reasonably good job of supporting myself, always knowing that push come to shove. If I needed assistance, I could go running back to my parents. Um, I mean, I've had kind of an easy time of it and I can't pretend, I can't pretend otherwise. I mean, there's a lot of sort of, you know, there's a lot of psychic wear and tear to being a, to being a gay man of my age. And I don't discount that. Um, but. Well, we've seen legal gay marriage within the decade, uh, yeah. several years ago. Did you ever think we were going to see that on the national level? No, and it was, I mean, I remember it because it seemed like it was this amazing dominoes thing where you set them all up and it's like, oh, there goes another state, there goes another ah, state, there okay. goes another state. And, and I remember you sit back and you watch it and you're absolutely agog, uh, you know, at the, at the speed. And then the Supreme Court comes in for the, you know, for, for, for the coup de grace. And, and it was like, wow, who... Who could ever have imagined? I, I could never have imagined. Um, what's interesting to me is that- Then my partner and I oh. ended up getting married, which was nice. So you, how long have you been married? We have been married, well, we've been, let's see, we've been together 12 years. We've been married for three. And you have a lovely daughter. Yes, we have a lovely four-legged daughter. And uh, she's adorable. I only know her from, you know, Twitter, obviously. She's uh, a very good dog. That's awesome. Uh, what I find interesting and maddening is that here we have all the legal dominoes in place. And one would think there would be a degree of finality. But there are people and in institutions who just won't let go of overturning that decision. Now, I can, as we both know, because we're educated, um, it will take at this point a constitutional amendment to have gay marriage not be legal in the United States. I mean, that's what it would take. Uh, and they are interested. I'm not, I don't want to keep you up at night. I'm sure you have other things to worry about. Um, but, uh, and it's not happening anytime soon from what I can tell. And I don't think it's ever happening. But just the notion that there are people who cannot, who cannot live their lives without somehow involving themselves in your life. It's like the worst Jewish mother joke ever told. 
I yeah. just can't, I can't eat and I can't wrap my head around it. And I, I, I'm a fairly smart guy. I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but I just cannot grasp this. Do you ever, do you find this a conundrum or do you just not really care? No, I mean, you know, for, for, I've always been a person who, you know, watching history go by, you know, standing in the middle of it, which makes it very difficult to see it. Um, but trying to maintain enough perspective to believe that things just keep getting better. Bit by bit, increment by increment, things get better. Now, the last four years have been a real test uh, of, of oh. that. I mean, I remember saying, and probably if I went searching back through my old tweets, it's probably sitting there. I remember saying, I can no more envision him becoming president of the United States. The name I almost never say out. Yeah, I know, Voldemort. <laughs> I can never, I can, I, can, I, I can no more imagine him becoming president of the United States than I can imagine the Allies having lost World War II. Yeah, and you know what's interesting is those two things kind of combined when I watched that Amazon show, uh, The Man in the High Tower, which I could only watch uh, a season or two. And then when life got really frustrating for me in real life, I couldn't watch Rufus Sewell anymore. He's a very handsome Nazi, but he is a Nazi. Yeah. <laughs> and, and he did some terrible things. I, I want to make sure, by the way, that I don't uh, forget to talk about the fact that you don't just have a book. You are now um, a franchise. You are a franchise. That's the I, I am a cottage industry. <laughs> you have a game. I have a game. And that's fairly new, right? Yes, it just it just went on sale. Today's Friday. Uh, today's Thursday, the what? Um, we're, we're taping this on the 9th. The 9th of so July. It just, went, it just went on sale on Tuesday. Holy cow. Um, and, and, and people are only going to be able to hear us talking, so they can't hear me hold it up, but <laughs> I'm, it up. you can see it. I can, and it says STET, S-T-E-T -E with an exclamation point, which if yeah. you don't edit ever, means don't change this, right? Exactly. I, I, I write this all over, so I write in several ways, and one of the ways I write is I'm an attorney, and I do appellate briefs and criminal matters uh, for indigent clients, that's one of the things I do. And I'm often, I'm old fashioned. I write on my computer, but I always like to edit, print it out. I can't just edit on the screen, that's me. So I'll print it out and then I'll hand write things. And I write STET. And I have to be honest, I don't remember the first time I ever saw STET. It's been a long time ago. But anyway, your, it looks like a box that might have trivia cards in it. Can you describe the game? It's got, it's, 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 it's a lovely little box. It's got a hundred cards in it. And basically the premise is on one side of the card, a, a sentence is given and, and, and your job as the player of the game is to determine what, if anything, is wrong with the sentence on that side of the card and offer the solution to make the sentence better. Now, there are cards on which the sentence that is given is fine exactly the way it is, in which case your response to that is set. set. Got it. Wow. That, I, by the way, maybe this says something about me. 
I think that sounds like a lot of fun. And I can think of many people that I would want to play that with. Yes, I, as, as, as to, to, paraphrase, to paraphrase somebody, I can't even remember uh, who it was, but it's basically, it's like, if this is the sort of thing that you like, you'll like it. I like that. That feels very Yogi Berra-ish. Yes. You'll like this if this is the kind of thing you'll like. Um, that's, that's fantastic. And it seems to me, by the way, that you have no attachment to this. This is just fun for you. Is that, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at your apartment. It's very nice. Um, you're happily married. You're not worried about making rent as far as I know. This is not about you hawking anything. You're just like having a blast. I'm, that, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just having an absolute ball. I mean, I, it was really hard for me to write the book. And I, and I, I, I do not forget that. And when I started working on it, I remember writer friends of mine saying, you will go through every existential crisis that you think you already went through and you will go through ones you've never even heard of. Um, and, and that's all true. I mean, you go through the, I have no talent. Why does anybody, why would anybody want to hear a single word I have to say about anything? But by the time the book was done and by the time the book went on sale, I was really quite satisfied with it. And, and I, I said to myself about a month or so before the book went on sale, um, and I meant it, that whatever it is that happens, however this book performs or doesn't perform, it exists. I wrote it. I'm proud of it. My publishers have done a very good job making it into a beautiful object, and and I am satisfied, and and I meant it. So everything that has happened in the last year and a half has been this for me amazing, wonderful adventure that the book has found success. The book has become quite popular. It uh, is. I, I think I told you at one point over the last year, back when I was riding the subway that I ran into someone, I'm confident I tweeted this, I, there was some just ordinary guy reading your book and laughing to himself. And I gotta think that's gotta feel good. And by the way, the cover looks great. The cover I love, looks I great. Love, I, I love the cover. When I, was first, when I was first shown the cover, actually I was shown five covers, which as my editor yeah. said is four more than we usually let an author see, but you know, we like you. <laughs> wonderful each in its own way but I pointed at one and I said but that's the best one and my editor looks at me and says good because that's the one that everybody loves <laughs> good because that saved her a lot of energy talking you into something else yeah I mean it's, <laughs> it's it's I like it because it's elegant there's the little there's a little joke on the front of a swapped apostrophe and a and a, a can't remember if it's a jot or a till, whichever one. It's the dot that goes over the eye. So it's it, it's this. It, basically, to me, it looks like a classic Random House 1957 jacket, gussied up for the 21st century, and then it winks at you. That's yeah. really great. Um, so has this experience, be being on the other side of the table. How do you feel having written now and being edited and going through this process? Do you feel that it's changed anything about the day job, if you will, that you have? Well, you know, I mean, I, I have always tried and taken great pride in as a, 
copy editor as a production editor and now as copy chief of the Random House Division. So I have a team of people and we're all working on books, but it's like I have always taken great pride in wanting to make sure that our authors feel supported by the work that we are doing for them. They shouldn't feel challenged. Your copy editor's job isn't to make you feel as if you have no talent. Your copy editor's job is to make you feel supported and to, to help you, as I always say, try to help your book become the best possible version of itself that it can be. Um, <clears throat> yeah, have I, have, I, have I developed even more compassion for the, 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 the difficulty of being a writer, for how, how, how flipped out writers get uh, as they're making their way to the finish line? Yeah, I, I, I have. So it just makes me want to try even harder um, to make sure that, that, that the, my colleagues and I are, are being really supportive uh, of the writers that we publish. And, and as, as far as I know, um, we do a really good job. I mean, it, it's, it's lovely every time you get an email either from the author to the editor forwarded to me, oh, you know, the, the copy editing department at Random House is so brilliant. I felt so loved. I felt so taken care of. Um, That's fantastic. That, it is. And it, it makes me happy every time it happens. You know, it just goes to show you that this, the business of publishing or the profession of publishing is so about relationship. When I was an agent, it was about the relationship with my clients. As an attorney who still does occasionally do publishing work, making deals or supporting people in deals, very much relationship. Editors have a unique uh, creative relationship with writers, much like producers and musical artists. Um, and it's just, uh, it comes down to that to a large degree. Wouldn't you, wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yeah. Um, what, I, what I observed, what I participated in being published, I mean, the thing is, it's not as if I hadn't been paying attention for all the decades of <laughs> to watching books be published, but to, to be an author. And, and yes, was I treated particularly well because I'm Benjamin, who's the copy chief in this very house? Well, yeah, you know, okay, that's fine. But um, the, the work that my company does in marketing, in publicity, in design, in, in all of it, it's so gorgeous. You know, yeah. I, I felt so well published. You know, that, it's interesting. That leads me to this. Um, you and I, again, I'm putting us together, but we have seen publishing go through a tremendous evolution in a short period of time. When I was first an agent, I was selling to, to, to traditional houses. I actually, before I was an agent, I was supporting a well-known New York Times bestselling author. And we traveled across the country and I went to tons of Walden books because she was a romance author and Walden, selling in Walden, hand selling books in Walden was the way you hit the times list, quite honestly, for romance. Went to lots of Borders books. And I, I'm talking about Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, you know, like towns like that, where when we showed up with her, it was like the Beatles showed up. Um, that world is over or certainly has changed dramatically. And there was, as an agent showing up at certain conventions, I literally got yelled at by authors who were telling me they didn't need me anymore. And they didn't need, quote unquote, the system 
or whatever they thought when they refer to it as traditional publishing with kind of a slur. But that, it feels to me like there's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of pendulum swinging. There's a lot of tumult. I feel like, you know, we're still reading. Books are still being created. Uh, I know that Penguin Random House, or as I like to call it, Random Penguin, sure. I'm not the only one, is going through a lot of things, no question about it. But there's still, there's a very big building on, I want to say Broadway or 7th Avenue, right opposite a very good Greek restaurant. Um, if it's the play, right? You're shaking hand up, Mollybos, that's the restaurant. Yes, right Martha. now. Right. Um, and, you know, you can go downtown a little bit and you can go to Punch uh, and have lunch with other editors near the Flatiron Building, although people have left that building for a variety of reasons. But my whole point is there's still a world of publishing that is surviving, that is thriving. It's not over. Reports of your death have been highly exaggerated. Do yeah. you want to, could you comment on that? I'm, I find myself really excited right now about what is going on in the publishing industry and particularly what's going on uh, in my own, in my own corporation, the whole corporation, not just, you know, my division of it, where the, the recognition of the responsibility of being part of the world and of, of, of doing what we can to help make the world a better place. Um, you know, it may feel a little bit like making up for lost time or making up for too much lost time. But I, I really believe, and not just, you know, to be the company boy and to say to my <laughs> people that I work for, that the recognition of the responsibility of publishing and I used to, I used to slip up, and I used to, I used to use the phrase "other voices" than the ones we're used to. And then I stop myself and I say, "No, they're not other voices; they're voices." And and the the the, the world has not embraced them properly. But that's not because they're peculiar and eccentric and exotic and other. It's right. because they've been left out. Well, it sounds, um, like, it sounds like you're excited to have them come forward or yeah, help and, bring them forward. And we are publishing many different kinds of books by many more different kinds of people than we did when I started out. And it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And it's really something that you want to, uh, you know, you want to live up to the, to, to the task. You want to you wanna do it right. And I, I think it's, I think it's exciting, and 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 just basically, I mean, insofar as books are concerned, people are reading, and people are reading a lot, and particularly, you know, with the with the isolation of of, of quarantine, people really want to read. So we got to really publish good books. I agree. I, I'm pretty much out of time. Ben Dreyer, you are leaving me optimistic, which I think if you spoke to anyone who's known me over the last couple of months. Uh, you have performed a miracle and a mitzvah for those who have to live with me. So thank you for that. For people who are listening, you want to get uh, Dreyer's English, which is, of course, the book we're talking about, and Stat, the game, which just sounds fun as heck. Uh, I think that's something I'm going to have to order off of the internet until I can actually walk into a store. I'm sure it's available where all fine games are sold. Would that be accurate? Yes. 
and, and, and one thing that, that is important that I do like to point out is that if you want to buy a book or you want to buy a game, and particularly if you want to buy one that's published by Penguin Random House, if you go to prh.com and look up the book or the game that you want, you will be given uh, a window that shows you all the possible places where you can where you can purchase something and they're there and 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 you will get links to go to your local independent bookstore that's great um, so you don't have to say make the richest man in the world even richer you do not and and i that's I, not me by the way <laughs> yeah and and i um i i love i love independent bookstores i mean i've always been a sort of bookstore tourist but um, they were also, they were so enthusiastic about my book and so loving and, um, and they're great. So that's, yeah, I just wanted to make that point. And people who want to find you on Twitter, we talked about it. You are ridiculously entertaining, appropriately <laughs> acerbic when necessary. And a, I, I dare I say a good friend that I've never actually hung out with. But I have on the internet. So th thanks. How would that? What's your handle again, so people can know? It's it's B is in boy, C is in Charlie, D R E Y E R B C Dryer. I'm recommending people follow you because uh, they should. They just should. I'm I'm commanding them. If they follow me, they certainly should be following you. Then thank you so much for being on. Is that really legal with Eric Rubin? It's been a, it's absolutely been a delight. I really want to thank you. Thank you. I had a really good time too. So that was Ben uh, Dreyer. Uh, I hope you enjoyed uh, hearing from him. I really think he is just funny, intelligent. Uh, his book, Dreyer's English, is just so informative and so fun. And this new game that he has just coming out called Stat, I urge you to go look for it. Um, if you're in publishing, I hope you got a lot out of that. Um, it's just a smart, interesting guy. We're going to have lots more smart, interesting people. So please stay tuned to Is That Really Legal with Eric Rubin. Make sure you go get Abe's Muffins. They're fantastic. They're vegan. I'm not vegan. I don't care. They just taste great. They're made with good stuff and they won't kill you. I don't know what else to tell you. If you want more information about Abe's Muffins or about this show, or you want to let me know what you think or who you think we should have on, please reach out. Go to isthatreallylegal.com um, or look at our Twitter feed or, I don't know what, scream out your window, whatever it takes. Thanks for joining me this week, and I look forward to joining you next week. Have a great one.